professional test creators aren't doing that. Since the 60s, we've shown in most of these studies that as long as you're making a good faith effort to create a test that's well suited for a, a group, you know, it's administered in a language they understand, they've had reasonable access to the content on it, we don't find bias. These IQ differences among individuals reflect actual intelligence differences. But what do I say to people who dismiss it or don't investigate it or say, oh, it's evil, it's racist? Right, um, right, yeah. I really don't say anything to them at all. Welcome to the Aporia podcast. This week, Bo Weingart speaks with Russell Warren. Remember, you can listen to this podcast on all the major platforms. If you like the show, you love the Aporia magazine. Find the link in the show notes, along with our Twitter and a link to the bonus questions we ask our guests. Hi, this is Bo Weingard with Aporia Magazine, and today I am with Russell Warren, who I think is currently an independent scholar, yep. a between-jobs scholar, <laughs> an expert on intelligence, and I think statistics and methods, and the author of many peer-reviewed articles which people can look up, and also the wonderful candid, courageous, and I would say indispensable book, In the Know. Welcome, Russell. Thank you for joining me. Thanks, Bo. I appreciate that, that warm introduction. <laughs> yes, I, I will say, I think this is the, the very best uh, short book, concise book on human intelligence. So let's get right into that. So usually definitions can be kind of tedious and something philosophers do, but with intelligence, I actually think it's important. So what do we mean when we say human intelligence? Um, you're right. Definitions, you're never going to get 100% agreement among everyone, but uh, definition has a lot of consensus is that intelligence is a global reasoning ability that humans engage in to solve any sort of task that's cognitive in nature, regardless of the task's content, regardless of um, the task's, um, I, I would say, um, setting or environment. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And so the, the beauty of that is that even if you think the most important thing is being able to do a math problem. And I think the most important thing is being able to reason verbally with language. We're talking about the same thing because the, the task content doesn't matter. And that makes doing research in intelligence methodologically a lot easier than a lot of other fields. Yeah. So I think that's an important point. And we'll, we'll say like, I'm sure other people had observed this before, but Spearman was the first to make this point like coherently and mathematically, which is that there, there's this sort of common, turns out that it's uh it's a canard that like, there's a such thing as being stupid at math, but brilliant at English, or, you know, I'm brilliant at math, but I can't speak a lick of English or whatever my native language happens to be. Yeah. But what you just said suggests that in fact if one is highly gifted at mathematical problem solving then on average one would be better at verbal problem solving is that a, a fair statement and what do we call that yes I, I agree it's a fair statement i'm glad you said on average it doesn't mean that <laughs> einstein could have also written you know war and peace 
Um, but it does mean <laughs> right. that the guy right. was above average in, in verbal ability, as, as is very clear. Uh, if you watch interviews from um, of him. Yes. Yeah. So it doesn't yes. mean that people are geniuses across the board or or extremely low across the board. But on average, people who excel in one cognitive task will excel in others. We call that the positive manifold. Um, and it's just this fact that no matter what tasks we give people, they all seem to be correlated. That people who do well in one task tend to do better in others, and people who do poorly in one task tend to do poorly in others. And um, it's, again, it makes doing research and intelligence methodologically a lot easier than a lot of other fields. Because there's other fields like, I think of creativity, for example, where mm -hmm. a lot of the measures aren't intercorrelated like that. And there's legitimate questions to ask about whether creativity is something coherent. Right, right. So, but this, 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 the way I like to think about this, and you may push back, I don't know if you'll push back on this. I think this is the simplest way I teach it to my students. I say, you know, if you think of athleticism, it's basically one thing, and there are many ways of manifesting it, right? Mm -hmm. So like you can throw a ball really far, you can jump high, you can run fast. Now, if we go to the gym and we observe somebody who runs really, really quickly for 40 yards, we would probably guess that guy's better on average at other athletic tasks. Mm -hmm. And that would be what we would call the, in, in intelligence research. We call that the G factor, right? Yeah. That is to say the general factor that explains all of this. Now here's a question though. It, at, at, some people have argued that we shouldn't use the term intelligence. We should just use a more like scientifically precise term, say the G factor. And we can just, get rid of he, he, intelligence such as such a contentious idea it's such a contentious uh, concept do you think we should get rid of the term intelligence or look like we're kind of talking about this thing yes we're a little more precise about it but let's be real we're not going to give up the term intelligence yeah i i have colleagues who feel both ways about it. some of them say oh the word intelligence just has too much baggage with it and they're right. Um, if you look at linguistic evidence, the the root the word's been in English in one form or another for you know since the late medieval era. It goes back even further in Latin, and you know, and it has even Greek ancient Greek roots. So you have hundreds of years of baggage, some of which is is controversial. Um, but when they offer G as a substitute, um, I'm not entirely convinced that we're gaining anything. Uh, G is a statistical abstraction. There's a statistical method called factor analysis that, that produces it. Um, mm -hmm. Not every study that investigates intelligence uses that factor analysis. We can't guarantee that they all really do produce this G through the statistical procedure. And even when they do, I say in the book, if it looks like a duck, waddles like a duck and quacks like a duck, it's probably a duck. Everything that people say about G is also a property of what most people think of when they imagine intelligence. <laughs> right. right, right, right. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. So I think of like, 
the chemist who declares we don't talk about water in chemistry we talk about h2o <laughs> and it's like yeah that is probably true and it's more precise and there are all of you you know one can cavil about it but look like at the end of the day we care about intelligence right we yeah. you know we don't care about g so to speak so it's so g as you said in this statement it's a, it's a statistical abstraction now one criticism that um, I will say the eloquent but often tendentious Stephen Gould uh, forwarded was that G is is a statistical, it's not just an abstraction, it's actually like an artifact. It's not real. What would you say to that criticism of G? Do you think there's something to that or is th is that like complaining that the athletic factor is not real? Um, there, there is some truth to that, um, and a podcast is not the place to get into the weeds about <laughs> the matrix algebra behind factor analysis. Fair point. <laughs> but, but the reality is that you could, if you wanted to, you could force almost any data set to produce one general factor using factor analysis. And actually, when factor analysis was first invented, unbeknownst to its inventor, Charles Spearman, um, his procedure mm -hmm. made it almost impossible for him to get more than one factor. Um, mm. And so if people are doing factor analysis in a way like that, yes, it is a statistical artifact. But it's been over 100 years since factor analysis was invented. It's been almost 120. Um, we know how to do it now so that you do get mm -hmm. results that are not due to someone pressing their th thumb on the scale. Um, and then also I would say in addition to that, um, if factor in, if G were just some sort of statistical artifact and it weren't real at all, th there's two responses to that. One is, okay, then show me a way to analyze the data that doesn't produce these results. Mm -hmm. it, it always does, um, almost every right. time. Uh, I published mm -hmm. an article um, four years ago where my student and I dug up um, 97 archival data sets and we purposely picked mm -hmm. conditions that would make it hard to get G. Um, we, we looked at um, developing nations that were non-Western and mm -hmm. we ran it through modern factor analysis. And in 94 out of 97 data sets, we got G, <laughs> even though we, <laughs> right. we tried to right. set it up. I seriously thought that a quarter or a third of the data sets wouldn't, we tried to set it up to not find G and yet we found it 94 out of 97 times. And so, right. you know, right. I'd say, okay, then show me, a data set, a test, a set of tasks that consistently don't produce G. And then my, my number two response is even if factor analysis had never, ever, ever been invented, you would still have the intelligence tests. They would still produce a global IQ score. The first tests were right. invented without any regard for factor analysis and you can mm -hmm. invent a test without using factor analysis at all, you can still produce a global score and it will still have the same validity. So 
Intelligence research IQ is not dependent on factor analysis. That being said, factor analysis does strengthen the evidence and is a very useful tool for test creators and mm-hmm. users. Right, right. So, so this is um, this is important because there are a lot of scholars who have made a lot of money arguing that, in fact, like intelligence is this very paltry almost picky yoon thing like why obsess about this when there are multiple intelligences or there's street intelligence <laughs> right never and probably the most famous never underestimate the american public's willingness to pay to listen to what they want to hear <laughs> yes, and the idea yes, that <laughs> there's multiple intelligences out there everyone's smart in some way man americans right. love paying to hear that <laughs> Right. Exactly. This is exactly right. It's, uh, well, if you score low on an IQ test, maybe you score a lot uh, high on a kinetic intelligence test, <laughs> you know how to move your body through space or whatever. Um, it reminds me of these Oprah, you get a car and you get a car. Everybody's <laughs> a genius somehow. Everyone gets an <laughs> intelligence. Yep. Right. So it turns out as you're making this point that look like when you beat up these data, and you did in this important article, I would say, because it was with samples of non-Western people. But you you can really beat up these data. And what you generally find, or almost always, is that they, again, they end up correlating with G. So I know like Sternberg had this triangle model because he loves triangles. So he always makes triangle models of everything. <laughs> and he made one of intelligence. And Gottfriedson, Linda, wrote this just, in my view, devastating criticism, pointing out like, Basically, it just ends up being G. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I know yeah. which articles you're talking about. And um, yeah, I'm not terribly impressed by these alternate theories. I think they're worth proposing and discussing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, science is a free-for-all. Let's, let's have everyone contribute their theories and let's subject them to the same scrutiny. Um, but when you subject them to that scrutiny, the results are very unimpressive. I will say to Sternberg's yes. credit, unlike mm-hmm. Howard Gardner with his theory of multiple intelligences, to Sternberg's yes. credit, he has at least collected some data. And yes. he's done some studies using his theory. I don't mm-hmm. – often the data support G theory anyway and not his. Um, and when it right. supports his theory, it tends to be very weak and there tend to be methodological problems. But to his credit, he's being a scientist. Um, Howard Gardner for yes. 40 years has just done navel-gazing. He's never once, <laughs> never in 40 years, done an empirical study to test his theory. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah. Statute of limitations is up. If you can't even be bothered for 40 years <laughs> to test your theory, we need to stop right. talking about it. Yeah, so you, you make a great point here, and I, I, I agree with you. It's it That is science. It can be anarchic, if you will, so long as people are willing to subject themselves to empirical testing, which Sternberg, to his credit, has. Gardner is basically writing poetry because he doesn't even care about this. And might I add, it's bad poetry, so read T.S. Eliot instead. <laughs> um so, okay, so we had this G factor. I think you and I both agree that it, it the data are pretty persuasive here. It seems to be, you say it's probably a universal. You cite evidence in your article 
and that it's even we find this in mammals other animals that is to say some kind of what we would say global intelligence do you, when do you think this evolved i know this is asking you to theorize here but what do you <laughs> i can see your face already. yeah uh, but it, it's a very interesting question though right because it, it's possible that see I don't know, like birds have only domain specific abilities. I'm not saying that's true, but it, one could imagine this, right? So do you have any evolutionary theory about this? Um, definitely, there seems to be a G factor in mammals. Um, the, the tasks that, you know, the, the ability that dogs use to solve one task's one task mm -hmm. is highly correlated with the ability they use to solve other tasks. You know, it looks a lot like mm -hmm. human G same with mm -hmm. mice um, and primates. So at least in the early evolution of, of mammals, you know, we're talking about, mm -hmm. um, you know, I want, I, I believe mammals don't quote me on it, but I want to say they originated about 110 or 150 million years ago. Um, I don't know if it was present in the very first species of mammal, but at <laughs> right. least it's very likely that there was a general intelligence in, in the common ancestor of all living mammals today, because it just seems highly unlikely that it would develop independently in different taxa within, within mammals. Right. Right. Outside of mammals, um, I'm much less certain. Um, I see some studies on birds that show a general factor, others that don't. Same with mm -hmm. fish. Doesn't seem to be present in um, in uh, in uh, lizards, um, reptiles, I should say, if I want to be really precise. Um, <laughs> but I just wonder how much of that is just because you know the herpetologists aren't <laughs> giving tasks to snakes. Um, so there's right. not much we know about <laughs> outside of mammals that I feel is really strong. Um, and, and honestly, hats off to the the zoologists and ethologists <laughs> investigating this because at least when I give a test to humans, uh, sometimes I can give it to a hundred or more at once. You know, if they're captive yes. college students in the classroom. And right. I can just give them verbal instructions. And as long as we're fluent in the same language, they almost always know what to do. Man, you have to test animals one at a time. You can't yes. just tell them, you know, you can't yeah. just tell that parrot to fill in a bubble on a sheet. Hats off to them. So when I say, oh, the evidence is not as strong outside of mammals, it's not due to a lack of trying. It is hard work. Right. Um, but it's very interesting work. And if we found a consistent G factor in reptiles in birds, um, it would give us a lot more insight to how this evolved in our species. As it stands though, yes. um, there's a lot of cool data about from mammals and, and, um, I bet as people look into this more, we're going to get more and more species that show a G factor. Yeah, I think, you know, it's interesting, though, because as we think about this, so the question, so one of my favorite creatures is technically called the Bufo Americanus, which is also the American toad. Uh, and I think about the American toad, and, and it's, 
it's not clear that the American toad has like general problems to solve. It seems to solve all of its problems through these domain specific mechanisms, right? Like if you watch how it, it, it finds prey, the, the way that it mates, etc. So, so this is important to note that you wouldn't really get or need general intelligence until you're capable of sort of solving these more creative, uh, I, I was going to say abstract, but that's not quite the way. The more um, general purpose strategies in life, right? Yeah. So what what does that suggest to you? Because there are multiple theories, and probably with you know, sort of like asking, why did you? How did the hand evolve? It's like a lot of reasons, right? <laughs> but there yeah. are multiple theories about why intelligence evolved, right? One theory is that it was about novelty. Another theory is it's about social interaction because we're a hyper social species. Do you favor any one of those or do you just, you not care as much? Because you seem very empirically oriented <laughs> and a little less perhaps interested in the abstract theory, but do you have any idea there? Do you, do you think one makes more sense? Um, gosh, you're asking me the hardest questions. Um, it, I think it depends on the stage of evolution and how most recently, mm. you know, how recent you're speaking about. And obviously the more recent in evolutionary history and humans you're talking about, the more evidence we have. So if you're saying, mm -hmm. okay, how did our right. shrew-like ancestors over, you know, about a hundred million years ago, who were the first mammals, how would they evolve a general intelligence? Oh, I don't think we have a lot of good evidence about one theory one way or another. But if you mm -hmm. say, okay, comparing humans, mod anatomically modern humans, to Homo erectus, I think we have a lot mm -hmm. of evidence about that. Mm -hmm. or even and you know, anatomically modern uh, the first uh, I, or even if you talk about modern humans compared to um, you know humans 300,000 years ago where they had simple tools mm -hmm. and fire and not much else I think we can talk about the evolution of intelligence in that time period with a great deal of confidence so in recent evolutionary history, I do think that social behavior was very important. When we mm -hmm. look at other primates that are highly social, like orangutans, chimpanzees, and gorillas, we, we see a G factor, or we see conditions that seem to lead to more complex behaviors that translate into other abilities. Um, I mean chimpanzees conduct warfare organized warfare for crying out loud um mm -hmm. I, I i think that that has something to do with their other social behaviors like grooming and 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 things like that so um you know social behavior the changing african environment as humans left our ancestors left um trees and became bipedal um mm -hmm. you know i'm sure that that one innovation probably led to others over time. You know, once you get the first tools to, to hunt, um, suddenly it starts making sense to organize hunting parties. And suddenly it starts making sense to also use those tools to defend your young or your mate. And I think there's a lot of positive feedback loops going on right. in the past 2 million years in humans.
Um, and we, we have a lot better idea of about those than we do about what happened 80 million years ago. Yeah, that seems quite judicious and reasonable. <laughs> um, and I, I sort of, I mean, my own view is, you know, it's probably a little bit of everything. I mean, yeah, so like, so, uh, obviously social behavior, especially when you're attempting to uh, predict the social behavior of another creative and complex creature that requires intelligence. So too does strategizing for war, et cetera, et cetera. So there are just lots of things here. Yeah, if now, it were another... solely about social behavior, then honeybees mm -hmm. would be the smartest species on the planet. <laughs> and they would be the ones going out into space, not us. <laughs> you know, if it were solely about tools, then parrots and, you know, other primates would be just yeah, as smart. Corvids would be, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. not solely due to one thing. And something happened in our evolution about 2 million years ago where a lot of these positive feedback loops really started accelerating. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. What? Yeah, there was, there, there was like is, a, <laughs> I don't know. Right. There was like a veritable explosion, if you will. And it, and it may be, it was just like a bunch of things. It was, it, it was like all of these kinds of things at, at one time in the right species in the right place. Um, yeah, I think that I think that is judicious. Now, here's something I'm sure you've heard a lot. If you're at a cocktail party, I don't know where these are because I never go to them, but they're the proverbial cocktail party and somebody asks, uh -huh, well, what do you do, sir? And you say, I study intelligence. And then the next response is, I heard that those tests are all biased. <laughs> no, yeah. it's, it's an important question to grapple with. And I understand like, for listeners who really want to dig into this, Jensen's Bias and Mental Testing, I think, remains the best book on this. And oh, it's yeah. a very complicated literature. But let's just say we want a shorter version. You handle this in the know commendably well. So let's just say, like, how do we respond to the it's all just biased? Um, I would say that there's legitimate reasons to investigate the possibility of bias. Um, mm -hmm. if you look at averages across different groups, um, there are average differences across some groups and how they perform on these tests. And when you find the existence of a group average on a psychological test, it's legitimate to ask whether something is wrong with the test, mm -hmm. but score differences are not enough to establish, um, bias. And I, I give a little flippant example um, in an article I, I uh, wrote, and then I quote it in, in the know, saying, if you give a test of pro-social behavior, how much people volunteer and donate and help others, especially those they're not related to, you're going to find that Catholic nuns score extremely high and that Hell's Angels score extremely mm -hmm. low. This doesn't mean that test is biased against Hell's Angels. <laughs> What? I'm sorry, but a group that, you know, a motorcycle gang that beats people up with chains should score lower on a test of pro-social behavior than Catholic yes. nuns helping the homeless, okay? Um, and so those score differences aren't enough to establish bias, but they are a reason to investigate bias. Mm -hmm. As you said, the literature it can technically get very complicated, but 
we've been doing these studies now for 55 years in the modern sense. There's earlier studies I found that are sort of embryonic investigations of bias, but since the late 60s, we've been doing this in intelligence and related fields like college admissions testing, K-12 academic mm -hmm. achievement, um, job aptitude testing. And as long as you're not loading up the question, the test with questions that culturally favor one group over another, you know, don't, don't be, you know, asking native Spanish speakers about English vocabulary. Okay. All right. right. Fine. Don't, don't load up a general knowledge test with questions about fashion and reality TV, like The Bachelor. Men are going to do very poorly on this test. Yes. <laughs> but professional test creators aren't doing that. Right. And since the 60s, we've shown in most of these studies that as long as you're making a good faith effort to create a test that's well suited for a, a, a group, you know, it's administered in a language to understand. They've had reasonable access to the content on it. Um, we don't find bias. These IQ differences among individuals reflect actual intelligence differences. Um, mm -hmm. And like I said, literature gets very, very technical sometimes. But we've gotten to the point where in the testing field, we know how to screen for bias. We know how to look for it. And it's actually written into the ethical standards and has been mm -hmm. for over 20 years, probably longer, that it's unethical to produce a test and sell it on the market unless you screen for bias. Right. And so, you know, I, I say if the test is professionally developed and it's administered to a population it was designed for we don't have to worry about bias. Now, all bets are off if you're administering an American test to a Saudi population, or if it's the fifth grade end of year test to second graders who haven't been exposed to the material. Okay, all bets are off. Right. You know, the British test being administered to Germans, whatever. But as long as the test was professionally developed and administered to a group it was designed for, we don't need to worry about bias. And we haven't yeah, used so that, bias for decades. Right, right. And I, I mean, one thing you're saying there, so like I have, I think, three thoughts on this. So one is like these professional companies that create high stakes tests, they have every incentive in the world not to produce a bias test. Because if they did produce a bias test and it and if that test were used for a couple of years, they probably could get sued for a lot of money. Um Another thing is just because there are differences does not mean the test is biased. As you said, it is, it's reasonable to have some suspicion, but let's think of a different test. Suppose that we have a, a, a basketball skill test and we give it to uh, me and Russell Warren and we give it to Steph Curry and Draymond Green and they outscore us by, I don't know, like, 25 standard deviations yeah. and we shout bias <laughs> and the the obvious answer would be no it should show a difference because there are real differences in the world 
And we'll get into the test, as you as you said, when we're talking about tests to different populations that uh, we'll talk about when we get to national IQs, a favorite topic of everyone. But this topic leads right into what is the proverbial worm in the apple of intelligence, the whole field, I think. I just think group differences, it's one of the reasons we can't talk honestly about IQ, et cetera, et cetera. So we know that we have group differences. Sex differences, more limited. People have had debate about that. It seems as though they're pretty similar, though. Race differences, however, are large, persistent, and the most controversial topic, I think, in academia, because you have this standard pattern of Asians at about 105, whites at about 100, African-Americans at about 85, and Hispanics somewhere in between those. So before we get into group differences, do you have any, if you want, any preliminary statements about this topic? And what do you think it's just done to the field of intelligence? In my view, it's just dumbed us down quite a bit because we can't handle it. But <laughs> I'll let you have any preliminary comments on that. Yeah, yeah, I'm on the record about group differences in intelligence. Um, I see that they are worth investigating especially Mm -hmm. as a potential explanation for group differences in, in certain life outcomes, especially in academic um, outcomes, but you know, in other areas where you talk about national differences, you know, I, I think it's valid to say maybe differences in IQ, Hey, this is a plausible explanation for differences in, why some countries are more inventive or wealthier or, or safer than others. I, mm-hmm. I think those are legitimate hypotheses to investigate. And I, I've written and published a little bit about this topic, but I personally, as Russell Warren's interests, um, don't find it the most interesting topic um, in uh-huh. intelligence. I'm far more interested in the the measurement and the, the individual mm-hmm. differences and, and trying to understand what it is in general, you know, whether it's cross-cultural and things like that. Um, But I see why it gets so much attention, especially in American society where we've never been, been comfortable talking about a race. And yet we're one of the most interracial societies in human history and probably one of the most successful ever too. Yeah. We can't get past it either. Um, I see why it often sucks all the oxygen out of the room. <laughs> um, yeah. That being said, I really wish that outsiders would look at the entire breadth of intelligence research and see, okay, this controversial subject that is 90% of what the public talks about mm-hmm. is like less than 10% of what the research body actually is. Right, right. Yeah, I I think that has to be frustrating for for somebody who's just like interested in, in some sense, these more abstruse questions, right? Because I'll admit my interests are much more esoteric and obscure than than what gets the clicks on social media. 
Right. You know, and, and so I, you... I see it when I share articles. It's like, hey, everybody, look, working memory has this important property. And <laughs> right. I get like two likes on Twitter, but if I post the slightest <laughs> thing about group differences, it blows up. It's like, yes. focusing on this. Yeah, it is. I, I can totally understand that. And, and as, you know, like maybe you're interested in P-fit theory or something and these really interesting questions about the biological basis of intelligence. And yes, I do think this. Uh, so let me tell you why I, as you know, I'm a hereditarian. I find this topic interesting. I get into tussles on Twitter, but you you may not believe this, but honestly, I would rather just read Wordsworth and Keats and call it a day. The reason I care about this topic is because I think there is pervasive dishonesty about it. And dishonesty irritates me. It vexes me and it causes me to want to force people to produce evidence for their what I consider outrageous, often inflammatory claims. So we know that there are group differences, Russell. This is nobody disputes this in the literature. Is Can we establish that first? Yeah, no one is, no one disputes that there are differences in the average IQs. You know, you you listed off some some examples. We can quibble about how large those differences are, and we can right. definitely argue about the causes. <laughs> yes, we but can. No one no one disputes that the score differences are there. If there right. were evidence that they weren't real, I think that would make a lot more people breathe easier. Yes, that would be in the New York Times very quickly. So so this is important. The reason I think this is important is because I often get into debates and the people first challenge that altogether. And I'm like, look, like if you want to have a serious conversation, nobody debates these gaps, right? <laughs> like let's let's get past that part. There are these differences, and then we can admit, yes, people do debate the causes. What has caused me a lot of consternation is that people act as though a 20% or more genetic hypothesis is absolutely outlandish, right? Even though we accept that for within group differences, it's 20 to 80% is the heritability we usually find. So you've defined hereditarian as more than 0% genetic. I define it as more than 20%. Simply because I say like, okay, if it's below 20%, it's not much of an effect. Yeah. You wrote an article though, Russell. So you say you're not as interested in this, but you did write. First of all, I want to commend you because you were quite candid and lucid on this topic and in the know, which I thought was, took real courage because it was a mainstream book and you, you, you wrote very honestly about it without an ax to grind, which is something I really appreciate about your work. You also, however, wrote an article about this, and you pointed to five lines of evidence that suggest a non-zero percent genetic cause. Mm -hmm. I, I won't go over all five of those, but I will ask you, why do you think, is it frustrating to you that the genetic hypothesis is dismissed casually as racist or like these people are invidious actors, you know, with malignant motives? 
how do you feel about that? And what do you think about that? And then we can move on to national IQs or something. Well, something less controversial, not really, but <laughs> um, hey, you picked, you picked the field. Yeah. Russ, but... <laughs> yeah. If I didn't want to talk about it, I shouldn't have written about it. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. Let's, let's first start. I, and I, I think, okay, well, who are the real hereditarians? Is it more than 0%, 20% more? I think that's right. That's a legitimate place where we can discuss it. I do think that if within the U.S. the group differences among racial groups and in, in intelligence, if it is only 3%, 5%, 10%, 15%, it is probably so trivial right. that, you know it probably won't have that much of an impact in day-to-day -day life. Although right. cumulatively across millions of Americans from different racial groups, you might start noticing some discrepancies, but in day-to-day -day life, it wouldn't matter squat. Right. Um, and I, I, I could see, okay, let's, let's establish 20% as the cutoff. Cause that's when you would start noticing it. And you know, that's a legitimate point of view. Um, I just established it as zero because that's that's what I encounter a lot outside of my <laughs> yes. colleagues. Um, yes, and um, and I think that we don't know if the genetic contribution is trivial or not. I think, yeah, we mm -hmm. do have five lines of evidence that it's more than zero. By the way, I've had colleagues criticize me for that article and saying you were too conservative. There's actually six, seven, 10 lines of evidence. Why did you set your standards so strict? Right. It's funny that the blowback I got from that article has been, why were you so conservative? <laughs> you should have been stronger in your hereditarianism. I'm like, no. I, I, I actually, I kind of had like a, wait, I want to add one or two lines to this. But yeah, I, I actually appreciate that it was so judicious though, because I, I, I think it makes it more effective. I, you know, it wasn't effectiveness. It was just to me, I, I wanted when I wrote the book and in general, in my research, I don't like extrapolating beyond data. Mm -hmm. I like strong interpretations that are strongly supported by my, my data. Right. And so when I said, okay, let's tally up the evidence. I found five sources of evidence that I could say, you know what? It's really hard to explain one of these from a purely environmental perspective, all five of them together are a really strong case that I can present to people. Right. Your mileage may vary. Okay, fine. Um, <laughs> but what do I say to people who dismiss it or don't investigate it or say, oh, it's evil, it's racist? Right, um, right, yeah. I really don't say anything to them at all. <laughs> um, you know, there's that, that meme from, from Mad Men where I, I don't remember the exact words, but you know, one guy saying to, to, to Don Draper, you know, I, I think that you're, you're doing X, Y, Z. And he responds, I don't think of you at all. Um, <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I don't think of the people making moral or rhetorical arguments at all. Now, you want to make an empirical or a good theoretical argument, 
like James Flynn did for over 40 years, you've got yes. my full attention and support. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to engage with you in good faith. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what do I think or what do I say to people who just point and scream racist? I don't, I don't think of you at all. <laughs> It's not productive. They're, they're not making a scholarly empirical this, argument. I don't have time for, uh, <laughs> for that. This is very high-minded. I appreciate that. I, I think... No, possibly... it's, it's just being very busy. I'm not high-minded at all. Okay, I'm just fair. too busy to give people <laughs> okay. my attention. Fair, fair enough. I think perhaps because I care more like about the distorting effects of this on other areas of discourse is why I care about that. I uh, I appreciate, however, your busyness and you know, like these other things to do, which is real. And you're right. I think this is an important point. Of all of the environmental-only theorists, I think basically two, you could quibble and maybe add Bird's article, but I think there are severe flaws with that. So there are two, James Flynn and Richard Nisbet, who, who forwarded serious attempts to make arguments, right? And Flynn did this without hurling calumnies at Jensen. In fact, he was laudatory of Jensen, and he respected him and respected the hereditarian hypothesis, which is precisely why he tried to argue about it. So it is not true that hereditarians, or for that matter, environmentalists, are implacable foes. In fact, we've worked together. <laughs> it's these outsiders you know, assailing people and using all this reputational stuff. And you're right. Maybe it, we should ignore it. Maybe that is a lot of noise and it's unfortunate. However, it is on the other hand, true that some of us have lost employment because of these issues. <laughs> and so we care about that. Um, yeah. I mean, people have lost jobs. Um, people have been subjected to bomb threats and, and physical yes. threats to their safety yes. uh, for proposing a database scientific hypothesis. <laughs> right. So exactly. When I say it's, it's really easy to say, Oh, I ignore them because you know, I'm not employed by a university anymore. I left academia for reasons that are <laughs> yes. completely and totally unrelated. Right. And I live in a part of the country that's not, infested with social justice warriors and yes. you know i don't pay a whole lot of attention to social media so it's really easy for me to say it when when unlike some of my colleagues i haven't lost employment i haven't been assaulted i haven't you know arthur jensen had to have his mail open for over a year right, right. by 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 the police i mean mm -hmm. in an era before email by the way yes yeah um so it's really easy for me to say oh i ignore it because no one's tried to give me a bomb threat um but you're right there are good faith people engaging in this and when when james flynn passed away about a year and a half ago even though i i disagree with a lot of his conclusions man that was a blow to the field yeah, you will yeah. never find a more honest right. scholar than James Flynn. Uh, but there are other people legitimately engaging with the data and the debate, and I respect them too. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, when the opprobrium starts, to put it mildly, yes. Yes. Um, I've been very lucky that a lot of that's escaped me, mm -hmm. but not completely. 
Um, it gets, it, it not only poisons the well, but you're right. It distorts the debate. Um, and, and it makes it hard for us to reach conclusions and then build policies based on data. I, I think data-based social policies have a much higher probability of succeeding than right. policies based solely on ideology. Right. And so for me, okay, let's investigate how important genetics are for race differences in IQ in the U.S., it's not because I'm racist or that, you know, I have an axe to grind against people or because I want to embarrass group X or Y. It's because I'm concerned about the upward mobility of some of my fellow Americans. And I want to know, okay, is this genetic? If it's only 10% genetic, great. We know not to, you know, focus on that. Let's right. move on to other questions. If it's 50% genetic, if it's 60% genetic then the question then becomes, okay, what policies can we enact that deal with this? Now that we know right. the severity of, of this problem and how hard it will be to fix in the short term, how can we cope and deal with it? And, you know, I would have a lot more respect, for example, for affirmative action advocates, for example. If they built a hereditarian argument, if they said, hey, yes. look, there's a partial genetic reason why we have these differences in preparedness for college or for qualifying for jobs. Mm -hmm. And I would respect them if they said, we don't want a race-based underclass in this right. country. Right. And I would respect them a lot more if they said – we understand that this is putting our thumb on the scale for some groups, but it's better than the alternative of a intergenerational genetically passed underclass that's race based. And I'd have a lot more, I'd have a lot more respect if they would stop saying, Oh, we only need it for 30 years. We only need it for 50 years. If they would right. say, Hey, because it's who knows 50% genetic, I don't know. Right. We're going to need this perpetually. I would have a heck of a lot more respect. Yeah. And it would the the blank slate lie would stop distorting our ability to talk about controversial policies. Yeah, I mean I couldn't I totally agree with you. I I I mean I'm personally not in favor of it because I think there are other costs with it, but that's fine. We can disagree about it. I want the honest argument. If if somebody said, "Look, like these differences are intransigent, not because white people are racist, but because there are these genetically caused differences. And we have to deal with this in a way that's humane and reasonable. And here's one proposed solution. I would, I agree with you. I would have a lot more respect for it too. And I think that is the part of this because, you know, for us, it may be, well, especially for you, I think for you, it may be more of an intellectual puzzle, a fascinating puzzle, intelligence, et cetera. But it does have real world consequences, in fact, significant real world consequences. And one of the things I think about burying the hereditarian hypothesis is that people often don't factor the, the cost of the divisive narrative of pervasive racism and that that's the cause of every group difference in outcomes. <laughs> and that's that's particularly nettlesome to me. So I, I totally and, agree with and you. Linda Goffertson has touched on that. She says if yes. you... 
don't think that these IQ differences, if you think these IQ differences are because of a bad environment, you either start saying, oh, it's because whites are racist, or you start saying it's because blacks are lazy. You yeah, start playing exactly. the blame game. Right, yeah. And I really like the escape hatch that behavioral genetics gives us, not just for group differences, but also individual differences. Individual, yeah. It gives us the escape hatch from the blame game. Because I yeah. don't find the blame game to be very productive, either for figuring out why little Johnny with an IQ of 72 can't do algebra or right. for why group X seems to always have difficulty getting into college without affirmative action. Right. I don't like the blame game. Yeah. And I thank totally heavens agree. behavioral genetics gets us out of it. <laughs> yes. I agree with that. And also another game I don't like is everybody can be a Plato scholar if they just put their mind to it. <laughs> Right, which is so Yes, there's a chapter in the book about that. <laughs> yes, yes, there is. Um, okay, so we look, like, we're not going to drill down too far into the group differences here. You and I, I think, both agree at minimum the genetic hypothesis is a quite reasonable one, and we need more evidence, and we need to explore it, and we need to stop uh, besmirching each other's reputations. I want to end before I ask are four questions with national IQs, because that's, a, I'm sorry, that's another incendiary topic, but it actually is maybe a nerdier one because there actually are a lot of complicated issues here. So just to set yeah. the stage, I will, I have to confess, I was the third author on an article that used these national IQs. We got a lot of blowback for various reasons that I won't get into. We just ended up retracting it. Uh, it's Rebecca Sears essentially been on a, a, a fervid crusade to rid the world of these supposedly racist national IQ data sets collected by Richard Lynn and then updated with Becker and Lynn. And the reason I think most people are so apoplectic about them is because they show remarkably low sub-Saharan African IQs. If it weren't for that, I don't think you would have the same kind of hostility because we have you know, national, let's say, personality data, and people don't get that worked up about it. So, well, what and, is... and also, the, if the, I can, if I can jump in, absolutely, no one ever. I've never once seen anyone say, you know, in Richard Lynn's database, the really low IQ for Guatemala seems really out of line, and and Paraguay, like, no one ever criticizes those countries. It's always about Sub-Sahara Africa, yes. yeah, which yes. tells you there's. There's a moral component yeah. to it. Yeah. Because I, I, again, I would respect Sear and other people a heck of a lot more if they said, you know what? Nothing below cutoff X right. is Makes realistic. Sense. And yeah. for that reason, I don't trust the data set. It's right. always about the low scores in Africa, even yes. though there are countries in in Asia and in Latin America that also show this. And so, yes. yeah. Yeah, it is true. So there seems to be a, 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 a touch, you know, more than a scintilla of moral concern infecting this debate, too, which, again, I think is unfortunate because I think it's it's such an important topic. It's such an interesting topic. Uh, you wrote an article on this and then you you recently wrote a blog on this, which I want to get to and maybe challenge you on, maybe not. But like your, I think your article, again, it was what I really appreciate about your work. It was incredibly judicious. It didn't have an axe to grind. It wasn't like 
these people are moral crazies. We should just flip them the bird. But it was also like, we shouldn't throw all these data out. So what's your overall assessment of the national IQ data sets? Overall, I think you can't give an overall assessment. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Ironic. Fair, fair point. <laughs> um, as you would expect from a, a data set based on a lot of earlier widely divergent studies conducted all over the world in a variety of of settings and subpopulations quality varies mm -hmm. um and yeah in the, i wrote that article because ironically it wasn't because i was angry at people saying oh it's all racist let's retract everything i was just as upset as people at people who are using the scores uncritically mm-hmm I, I was angry at both camps. I was like, <laughs> here you have people who say, oh, no, use the data. Don't bother. Don't bother changing a thing. And then you had people saying, oh, it's all evil data. Delete it completely and salt the earth. Um, <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, my gosh, can we have a middle ground? Um, and so, you know, I, I did a deep dive into the, the methodology and um, probably – Becker's the only person who knows the methodology better than me. Mm -hmm. I spent months going over the documentation yes. and checking their work. Um, and I also looked into external validity evidence. I, I treated it as I would any other psychometric score of gathering yes. validity evidence. Um, and I found that for some conclusions, yeah, you can use it. For others, no. The big de the biggest deficits I found were number one, um, what I call geographically imputed IQs. Right. Um, Lynn and Becker um, used the procedure. If they didn't have data from a country or from a population, they would take available IQs from up to three neighboring countries and average them. Right. And almost every statistical check I could perform on those IQs showed that that is not a viable procedure. Mm -hmm. And so I think that if I'm ever a peer reviewer on an article that uses these IQs and they, and the authors use the geographically imputed IQs, I'm going to say, drop them. Right. You cannot use those. Uh -huh. Those are completely and totally invalid. Right. I'm also very skeptical about, IQs in developing nations that are based mostly or solely on nonverbal tests like the Ravens. Mm -hmm. We've known for, for years that these tests don't quite function the same way for, um, for population, for Western populations that are educated compared to much less educated populations. And the, the scores, I think about 75 or lower for these countries based on these tests are not, mm -hmm. are not reflecting the intelligence of these groups. And so I say in the article, don't call those, you know, don't, don't interpret that as being intelligence if you use them at all. And I think you're justified throwing out those values mm -hmm. if you use them at all say that these tests are measuring 
the pop the country's training in solving test problems right 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 and <laughs> which is not the same as intelligence right but this this um, yeah this starts to get us into obviously on a podcast we can't can't get into these sort of recondite issues but like the, even yeah, this, it, it, the article's over 20 pages long it is, it's one it, of the longest articles i've ever written yes and i have to i have to highly recommend it it's very thorough i mean you must have spent months waiting in this because i i read it and i could only imagine because <laughs> i actually thought about doing what you did and i was absolutely intimidated by the prospect and thought nope not, not gonna spend half a year doing that <laughs> but um yeah so, so this there's there is this what's let me push you on this for a second, though. So we know that the sub-Saharan IQ scores are pretty low. And, and there people have debated in the literature, like, what what is the actual score there? I, um, Wickerts, I think, put it in, in the, the low 80s. Um, Lynn put it maybe even at 70, sometimes lower. Reinderman tried to take a took sort of a middle ground, put it around 75. Let's just take one just to be specific so let's take nigeria nigeria we find roughly 70 now if we, we actually have um world bank data on these scores as well right as you know so like sometimes you get pisa that you can use to correlate with it sometimes you have other tests that you can use world bank created what they caused harmonized scores which are using these other tests and Nigeria gets about an average of 309, which you translate into an IQ of about 66. So we have this other data set, it finds 66. Now, importantly, the reason I pick Nigeria is because we have roughly, I, I think the sample from Lynn and Becker was in the tens of thousands. And a lot of these, in fact, I, I went through... Uh, uh, Last week, I went through um, the samples, and a lot of them were school students. You know, they weren't. So, so one just one of the points you make in your um, in your blog, which was a good blog, people should read it though, is is you talk about these two uh, people who did analyses with rural peasant populations, Alexander Luria and Cole. I think he did it in Liberia, but in Nigeria, we're not talking about peasants here we're talking about kids at schools so the question I, I guess i have is isn't that reasonably plausible then to say that that's intelligence i mean i get your point you're like look in some of these populations these aren't functioning the same technically speaking they they're not measurement invariants they don't have like the same structure yeah, yeah. in some of these cases though it seems to me that they're reasonable and Nigeria seems like a good example of this, where it looked like, yes, it does have a low number, and people can get outraged about that, but I don't see the issue with this one. I think, like, oh, the, the, the data are pretty good here. Now, we don't know exactly what that means, but it seems to me reasonable to assert that that's a good IQ score. Now, do you want to push back on that? What do you think about that? Yeah, um, and this this gets deep into score validity issues yes. um and right. that's you know my jam that's why it's like yeah i'll take this on when, <laughs> yes it is because i you know <laughs> the tests are uh much more interesting to me than a lot of other things um yeah that's why i say clearly these 
these national IQs are measuring something. Mm -hmm. If they weren't, they wouldn't correlate with independently derived estimates. They wouldn't correlate with things like, um, like, um, democracy, you know, how democratic a country is or how many rights it gives to women. They wouldn't correlate with economic development. They wouldn't correlate with, you know, the number of scientific papers published per capita, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I don't think they're always measuring intelligence. So, you know, when you look at Nigeria and, you know, Russell says, uh, that number's too low for me to trust. Right. And you say, well, look, there's an independent data source that's even lower. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is what I said. Um, what, what I think is going on is that whether they're school tests, whether they're Ravens tests, whether uh, they're, they're other their other instruments the when they're developed these tests developed in the west are measuring a population's ability to engage in abstract problem solving and and thought Mm -hmm. um and so yeah i'm not surprised a population that has much less education in the west and that has a much lower quality of education um, still performs very poorly on these school tests. Um, we we do know, based on cognitive anthropology and, and other stuff, that completely uneducated, unschooled groups do not think the same way as Westerners who have been to school. Right. Um, even a little bit of Western education really greatly revolutionizes how people think. Right. And so, you know, then what's going on with these school tests administered to school children? A couple things. Number one is that a lot of the education quality is extremely low. And I cite in my um, Mm -hmm. evolutionary psychological science article um, a study of sub-Saharan African education systems. It's by Bold et al. Mm-hmm. Um, where often the teachers aren't even in the classrooms. And in a lot of these countries, um, the teachers struggle to even do algebra. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the quality of the education is much low. One year of American education probably is worth two to four years of sub-Saharan African education. So I think that's some of it. I can buy that. Um, But, you know, that's where I come back to whether it's a nonverbal Ravens test that Lynn and Becker are basing their data on often, or whether it's a school test that the World Bank is using for their data. It's still measuring abstract thought. Mm -hmm. And that's not the natural default way of thinking for humans. Mm -hmm. It's a very artificial way that has to be taught and it has to be taught well to do well on these tests. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm not surprised that two tests correlate very strongly and give low scores, you know, right. Regardless of their format. Um, and that's why I say in the, in the evolutionary psychological science article for these really low scores don't say they measure intelligence, say that they measure how well a population has been trained to um, solve 
solve um, abstract problems. Um, I th one of the reasons why it interests me is, is because I have that theoretical interest of what is intelligence, how does it develop, where did it come from, how did it evolve. Um, and I really think if we can get past the, the shrillness <laughs> <laughs> yes. of the the um the critics and, and that's why i am grateful for people like wickerts who who are engaging with the data yes and who have great criticisms Absolutely. He, he's the one that has made me really skeptical about raven scores yeah um i think if we can get past the general disgust about the topic mm-hmm then we can start learning a lot about human psychology. Um, I think we need better tests for the developing world. Mm -hmm. um, and in some respects, for Westerners, they're going to be easier tests. But I think we need better tests for the developing world. And I think we then need to, to gather data and do, for example, longitudinal Flynn effect study. What happens to... A t uh, the population in their problem solving ability before and after a school is built in that rural village mm -hmm. or can we do what what we see in the Liberian and the Central Asian studies I blogged about um, can we find similar subpopulations similar groups who have differing levels of westernization exposure to western culture and education and find out how they differ in their thinking and move beyond just a global IQ that may or may not measure intelligence and really dive in and say, okay, you know what? Here's what happens in the early stages of a Flynn effect. Here's what happens when one thing changes over 20 years when a school is built. Or, hey, instead of a general IQ score, we have some interesting issues going on about how similar groups in, in different environments engage in analogies mm -hmm. or classification problems. That to me is way more interesting than country A scores higher than country B, but we need to understand country A and country B scores to then understand what, you know, why this is and improve the methodology. So I feel like I'm rambling. No, 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 that's, that's excellent. And it's, it's so that, no, I totally agree with you, by the way, which uh, the point that I would make, however, is that the reason we can't do this, which I agree with you, I I'm utterly fascinated by thinking about w what is the Flynn effect? What does it mean about intelligence? Can you have a, an improvement in one domain and not in the other? And what does that mean? Is there anything to the nutrition hypothesis, et cetera, et cetera. But so long as we have what you called shrill, and I think it's the right word, this cacophony of outrage, when we hear a low score, we can't do that. And, and like, I, I, importantly, I think, just to point out to critics of this, and like, look, you might be right that you should call it something else, but the predictive validity of a lot of these scores is very high. So I can use these scores and I can tell you things that you didn't already know if you didn't have those scores. <laughs> and yeah. to me, the fact that you I, would... I would, I would say 
if you're going to talk about Sub-Saharan Africa, the predictive validity tends to be very high at the group level. Yeah, at the group level. At the national, yeah. the state, the community level. They don't always have strong predictive validity for individual mm-hmm. outcomes. Yeah. So I, I will put in that caveat. Okay, very fair statement. So at the group level, at the at the nation level, et cetera. And, and it, I, I really f- find it antithetical to the spirit of science for people to call for the retraction of articles with these data sets or to say that we should not even be able to use these. When Lynn and Becker did exactly what you should do, they made it public. These are completely public, and yes, some of the data are somewhat slipshot, but that's that it's public. You can look at those and say, okay, mm-hmm. look, they have this is a sample of 22 people from some rural village. Um, and this this is what you should do in science. And so yeah. while I agree with you that it would be nice to get into these more in in some ways difficult but more fun <laughs> questions about you know what does it mean to say it's measuring intelligence what's intelligence in a group that hasn't started to think abstractly we can't do that until we stop this crusade against this and and yep. th- yeah that's what irritates me so yeah let me wrap that the, the ironic thing is that that seer and a lot of these other critics um if they would read my article with an open mind, they would actually find that they agree a lot with a lot of it. Yes, like, they would. <laughs> right? And, and, you know, ironically, I, I really think that my article is going to be used as ammunition in the future for people who use the data set uncritically, but you know what? Right. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, but, so I mean, if people, yeah, could get past the, the moral argument. Yes. I, I think that uh, when you look at a database, you know, as a database argument, like I said, the, and the best example is the imputed IQs. Yeah. I mean, I'm sorry. I I cannot justify the use of those at all whatsoever. You know, dang it. <laughs> Someone tries to use those in the future. They're not going to like my article. <laughs> right. Um, right. And I, to, I know people who answer... don't agree with you. I, I know people who think you should use the imputed and people, yeah. people get into, and, and you know what, like to me, I would rather have that debate. I would rather have this debate with you. Should we use the imputed? What does the low IQ mean? than this debate, you are a racist if you use them. That's the debate that I, yeah. that I detest. And I think you're right. I'm actually especially your blog coincidentally i'm the i'm sort of like man he's he's a little bit too in that direction for me <laughs> i disagree a little bit on the other side you know look it's a debate of course and i could be wrong yeah. but you and i could have that debate and that's what i think we want it's just oh, yeah. yeah is to have this debate and i i've had some pushback from colleagues saying you're you're too skeptical that these tests can measure intelligence. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I don't think I'm too skeptical. And <laughs> and once yes. you start hitting high seventies, eighties, okay, nah, your your country doesn't have a lot of excuses, <laughs> um, <laughs> right? But um, you know where the cutoff is, where you start being too skeptical, where you think mm-hmm. it no longer measures intelligence, or yes, it does. That that's legitimate debate. I agree with you. Um, the, the the absolutist debate and the moral debate is not a productive one, right? And um, 
you know, I think I think that if by asking the right questions, we start having much more useful debates. And that's why one of my questions is, okay, what what is it? You know, if you look at the Wickert's results where, you know, we don't have measurement invariance when right. populations score really low on the Ravens. As a starting point, to me, the follow-up question is, okay, what is it yes. about those populations where the test isn't functioning well? And that's why I've been reading up a lot on this cross-cultural testing, and I've hit on education really revolutionizes how people think. And if you consider intelligence as being the phenotype, the sum of everyone's experiences, including education, mm -hmm. then you don't find my argument very convincing. You say, well, you know, come on. Low education can mean low intelligence. You know, grow some balls and, and, and say something <laughs> controversial, Russell. Or if you see it as, no, there is an important qualitative difference. Right. Yeah. Then you may see my argument. But... But to me, we need to get better instruments, better samples, and to understand what's going on at the national level better, we need to understand what's going on at the individual level better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah. That, that requires new data, new tests, and, and moving beyond the argument of – is this kosher or not? Yeah. Should this be retracted or not? Right. Yeah. Yeah. On, on this, we will have enthusiastic agreement. And I would just say, by the way, I'm, I'm in between those two positions. I, I, I think I find some of your arguments persuasive. I think I'd push back a little on some of them. Maybe, maybe you'd persuade me. I don't know, but we both ecstatically agree that the moral argumentation gets us nowhere on this topic is incredibly counterproductive. I have, my four questions that I like to conclude these things with. So we'll wrap it up with these. I appreciate all the time you've given me. So one, who, speaking of this, who, I think I know the answer, but who has presented the, the, the sort of best alternative view to your view of intelligence and maybe what book could somebody read to find that? Do you have, if you could pick one person, um, the person I disagree with the most, whose data-based theories I respect the most. Now, if you want to hear our guests' answers to the bonus questions that we ask, then you need to become a paid supporter. And you can do that over on our Substack page for just $6.99 a month or $69.99 a year. I promise you it's well worth it. Supporters also get early access to the podcast and to our special filmed conversations, which go up over on the main channel somewhere over there or down below. The link is, is always down below. And of course, if you like this, then you will love our online magazine. You can check that out by clicking the link down below. And if you are so inclined, you can find the links to our Twitter and TikTok. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you in the next one. If you're talking about pure psychology, I think that... Um... Hamlet is the work of fiction that explains more about Western psychology than anything yes, else. They're not just amazing scientists who, on a regular basis, publish more important work than I have ever published in my career. <laughs> but they are also just delightful people.
magnanimous, willing to share credit with junior colleagues and students. Um, the roster of, of former students and postdocs they've trained is second to none. 